turn to Joshua chapter 7 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible with you today, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, just waving at their attention, and they'll give you a Bible this morning so you can hear the Word and read as well. And then please, our heart, and certainly God's heart, is is that if you don't own a Bible, that you'd make that Bible a gift from Him um, today. I want to deviate again this morning from our current study in uh, 1 Corinthians. Last Sunday morning, we shifted away from it as well as we, uh, as I felt impressed by the Lord to address the subject of prayer and the importance of prayer related to the last days, the importance of prayer in order not to lose heart. And then last Sunday night, we got a chance to actually engage in prayer and specifically in the realm of spiritual warfare and kind of a massive pushback against spiritual warfare upon our body, and it was a fabulous time. And then this morning, my heart is led as we just kind of tie up uh, uh, one final loose end. I want us to have a, a reference point that we move from uh, and move forward into. In these last couple of weeks, this is what's on my heart. And so I want to address that subject here today. And I'm not talking about any kind of an existing situation in our church. I'm not saying that what we're going to talk about this morning characterizes our church in any large way or in any small way. I'm not trying to address a known problem from the pulpit. All I know is that it's on my heart and we want to move forward knowing that in the realm of spiritual warfare that we aren't tripping over our shoestrings and uh, falling needlessly, but that we're right where we need to be as a church body. And so this morning I want us to consider here from from Joshua chapter 7, the possibility of how one person's sin among God's people can bring defeat upon all of God's people. And the title of this message is The Peril of Sin in the Camp. And we'll read here in Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. And so the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they've also put it among their own stuff. And therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they've become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. And in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall be according to families, and the families which the Lord takes shall be by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire after he was stoned, as occurs later in the chapter. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he's done a disgraceful thing in Israel. 
And so Joshua rose early in the morning and he brought Israel by their tribes. The tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah and, the tri- and took the family of the Zarhites. And he took the family of the Zarhites man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, of the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Joshua said to Achan, my son, he didn't like, he didn't like what he was having to do. My son, I beg you. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw the spoils, among the spoils, a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for how multifaceted it is. All the broad variety of things that it addresses, all of them necessarily so. We thank you for the privilege of being able to turn to this passage this morning in fellowship with your Holy Spirit. And we just ask that you would confirm your word here, Lord, with accompanying signs and wonders in us as a group, Lord, in this room and also in the privacy of our individual hearts. It's a miracle to hear your voice, Lord, loud and clear. We want to hear your voice loud and clear. And we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The background of this situation in Joshua chapter 7 is that God had called the children of Israel to go into the promised land and to conquer it under the leadership of Joshua. And they began that conquest of the land in a city called Jericho. And God said, since Jericho is the first fruits of the land, it's the first city that you're going to take, one of many, many cities, but it's the first one. Because it's the first one, I want everything of the spoil of that city to be dedicated to me the first fruits to God. And God spoke to them and said, of all of the other cities after Jericho, that spoil belongs to you. But the spoil of Jericho belongs to me. And it wasn't a matter of the fact that God needed silver or gold or he needed Babylonian garments or tapestries or anything like that. It was just to give God the respect and to give him the honor as the source of the victory that they had received at Jericho and, and that they would experience all the way through the conquest of the land. And he said, all, everything that can be burned, all of the clothing, all of the tapestries, all of the wood, all of the... Every, he didn't want Canaanite goods. He didn't want any of that. He wasn't going to enrich himself in this way. He said, I want all of that burnt. And what can't be burnt of metals, of the iron, of the bronze, of the silver, of the gold, that's to be taken and put 
into the storehouse of my temple. The children of Israel experienced a tremendous victory over Jericho. And they moved then on to the next city that they needed to conquer in the conquest of the land, a city by the name of Ai, the ruins of which are part of an archaeological dig in Israel today about 10 miles northwest of Jericho, and the children of Israel find themselves now standing face-to-face with the city of Ai. But when the children of Israel then attacked Ai, they were defeated. And the men of Ai rose up against the men of the children of Israel and not only defeated them and repulsed their attack, but then beyond that they killed 36 men of the children of Israel. And the interesting thing about that defeat at the hands of of Ai is that it would be the only defeat that the children of Israel would experience during the entire conquest of the land. Later on, some of the tribes did not engage in the battles that God had called them to be to engage in, but he would have given the victory to them. But everywhere they engaged in battle and took the land that God had given to them, they never knew a single defeat in that entire season of their history. The only time they experienced defeat was here at Ai. Well, when they were defeated by the men of Ai... 36 men dead. News came into the camp of the children of Israel and it terrified them. The Bible says their hearts became like water, just dropped down to their feet. They're completely incapacitated almost by fear, demoralized by the fear. Because here they are having taken a step of faith, obeying God, they now find themselves in enemy territory, on the west, on the north, on the south, all of these lands know that it's going to either be them or the children of Israel. All of them have the sharp knives out. They all want to destroy the children of Israel. And the children of Israel would have been readily destroyed except for God's promises and his favor upon them. And here they go in the second battle that they're about to engage in, and they suffer this terrible defeat. And they come to the, and it would terrify you if you were in that place. And they came to the conclusion that somehow God has lifted the fullness of His presence off of us. We're in some deep trouble here right now, and all of it confused them as they're in the middle of this battle, and now the fullness of God's favor has somehow been affected, and And they're confused and they wonder to themselves, how in the world could they suffer this kind of a defeat when they were just simply walking with God, obeying God, walking by faith in his promises? That kind of a defeat is a confusing uh, defeat. And they did what most people do when that kind of a defeat occurs. The right thing to do would be to say, God, this defeat here, this doesn't line up with your word or with your promises or what you told me to do. And I'm not seeing this very, very clearly, but you see it very clearly. So would you mind telling me how did this happen and what do you know about this situation that I don't know about? But sometimes we're not thinking that clear when our wives and our children and our families are in danger. 
And so they began to blame God for failing to keep His promises to them. And Joshua's praying and all of them are praying and blaming God. What are you doing, God? And how could this happen? And then God responded by giving them the real reason for their defeat. And He informed them that someone among the children of Israel had transgressed His commandment by taking some of the spoil of Jericho that was to be dedicated completely unto God and that somebody had taken a portion of that spoil unto themselves. And God said, that is the reason for your defeat. There is sin in the camp. And the Lord then further declared to the children, uh, uh, to Joshua, that he would remove his presence and his favor upon them unless that sin was exposed and unless it was judged. And significantly, that they wouldn't be able to stand before their enemies, he says in verse 12, unless this sin was exposed and it was judged. This is a pretty serious business. For the children of Israel, X thousands of years ago, but for us reading the Bible today, it's even more serious to us because we face an enemy as Christians in this new covenant that is way more ruthless than the Canaanites ever dreamt of being. And the Canaanites were very ruthless. The devil is out to destroy us as Christians. And no opportunity, we can't afford to give him an opportunity to bring defeat, needless defeat, upon God's people. And so the Lord called Joshua to get up off of his face, he's praying on his face before the Lord, and to sanctify the people, to purify the people of this sin. And God said, I'll help you to do it. Tomorrow morning, I want all 12 tribes front and center in front of me. I will identify one of those tribes. Let all the other tribes go to the side. And then within that tribe, I will then identify a clan. All of the other clans can go by the wayside. Then I will identify a family. All of the families can go by the wayside. And then within that family, I will go man by man until I identify for you the person that has done this thing. Joshua's obedience immediate, as you might imagine. And the next morning, all of this occurred just as God said it would until Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Why is he described that way? Because that's the means by which God was forced to use in order to identify him as the transgressor in Israel. And Joshua confronted Achan, calling for confession of his sin, an explanation for what was going on. Achan confessed his sin, and then God judged both Achan and his household, doubtless because they were a part of the scheme of stealing from God and, and keeping it to themselves. And so the Lord judged Achan and his household. And, and as a result, he removed the leaven from among his people. And then the children of Israel arose, and they went on not only to defeat Ai, but they went on to defeat each of the cities, and then the conquest of the land. It's interesting to realize that one man's sin, just one man's sin, one man's transgression, 
brought defeat upon all of God's people. I could elaborate on that more, but I don't have the time to do it today. But we believe it to be true because it's in black and white right in front of us in the Scriptures. And I think that as Christians, sometimes we can tend to think that our sin, our transgressions, um, our hypocrisy, our secret sin only affects us. I'm the only one that's a victim of my disobedience to God, that it doesn't affect anybody uh, uh, else, but it isn't true. If we're a Christian, then our sin or our transgressions, our life of hypocrisy, it affects everyone on some level in the church that we attend. It affects everyone on some level in the church that we attend. I think it's important at this point to stop and to understand what a transgression is. A transgression in the Old Testament was willful, deliberate disobedience against God and His commandments. It didn't refer to a person who didn't know any better and then committed a sin. A transgression was a person who knew better, knew full and well, and yet decided that they are going to uh, disobey God's commandment and going to settle down into a life of disobedience to God's commandments. It's a willful, deliberate disobedience of God's commandments. So we're not talking in this passage, so don't apply it to yourself. We're not talking about Christians who are imperfect in applying this passage. Are there any imperfect Christians in the room this morning? The easier question would be, are there any perfect Christians in the room this morning? Now, there's only one, and he lived 2,000 years ago, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and we're waiting for him to take us out of here one day. So no Christian is perfect. It's not talking here about Christians who are struggling with temptation. Don't apply the sermon this morning or the passage to yourself. We all struggle with temptation. Sometimes the devil makes us feel like we're the only ones that have to fight with this sin. Every temptation that overtakes us is common to man. Everybody deals with the same temptations, the same things. You're not an oddball. And you're not... God knows how to get us through all of those things. But it's not talking about someone who's in a mighty struggle related to temptation and, and that's, that's who's brought sin into the camp. Uh, we all struggle with temptation. And we're not talking about Christians who try as we might to live this Christian life. We fall short of God's standard. We sin. We fall on our face. And we confess that sin then to God and ask for his forgiveness, and he forgives us, and he lifts us up, and and he brushes the dust off of us, and he keeps us moving forward in our walk with the Lord. And he's so good to do that, and he's so faithful, and he's so kind, and he's so loving, and he's so gracious. It makes us love him all the more and desire not to sin or to fall short or to fall on our face more than ever. We're not talking about that kind of a Christian. That's the part of a growth process for, 
so many of us. Transgression is a willful, deliberate, calculated sin that a Christian engages in and then refuses to repent of. However, whatever the Bible says, they don't care. However great the conviction of the Holy Spirit on their life, they disregard it. And they don't care about how much damage the sin might be doing to other people. They're just going to engage in this sin. They say, I know that God prohibits this activity, but I'm going to uh, engage in it anyway. And the problem with transgression, with that kind of person, is that transgression grieves the Holy Spirit. And then ultimately, it quenches the Holy Spirit in that person's life. And when they come to church pretending to be one thing, but then God knows that there's something altogether different away from the church, that this is a hypocrisy. They put their church face on here, but at home, they don't have any interest in taking any of this seriously at all that that kind of person and that kind of hypocrisy, it spoils the church service for God. It ruins it for Him. And He wants to enjoy the church service as much as we want to do it. And it introduces a leaven into the church that keeps God from blessing a church the way that He wants to. And the problem with that is that many of us who are attending that same church can find ourselves in the midst of great, great trial and great, great spiritual warfare. And we need a church that has 100% of God's blessing upon it. We can't afford to be in a church that is operating at 80% or 70% or 50% or 30% in terms of God's anointing and His power and His presence and His blessing. We don't have those kind of margins because of what it is that's going on in our lives. We need a church that has 100% blessing upon it in terms of God's anointing and in terms of His presence. And so the guy who's like Aiken, he's just doing his thing, coming to church every week in his rebellious condition, and he has no idea so often that his sin is affecting everyone else in the room. In the Old Testament, secret sin, we talk about secret sin, but only in the sense that a person can for a time keep sin secret from another human being. There is no such thing as secret sin. We see it in the passage that was here. Achan takes the Babylonian garment. He takes the silver. He takes the gold. He hides it in a tent, which completely dumbfounded God. I mean, he can't see through tents. And then to make it doubly secret, he digs a hole in the ground, and he puts it and he buries it in the ground. Well, it made a secret from three million other people the children of Israel, but it was no secret to God. God didn't look and say, oh, no, he's buried it. I can't see it. Kryptonite, what's the deal? I can't. This is my... There is no secret sin, no such thing as secret sin related to 
the one who is most important in our life and related to the one who is the star attraction of any church that exists or is to be. In the Old Testament, secret sin became so great among God's people that one day the Holy Spirit just up and left. He left the temple. The temple is built. It's there in the city of Jerusalem. He said, this is the temple where I will meet with my people. This is a place for the whole world to come into contact with the true and the living God. And the secret sin among God's people became so great that God said, I can't participate in that. I can't be a part of it. It breaks my heart. It, I'm, I'm not nowhere near the top of the list as a priority in what's happening there. He departs the temple. It's one of the saddest pictures in the whole Old Testament. He departs the temple, and as His Holy Spirit departs the temple, the Holy Spirit pauses at the Mount of Olives. Just a heartbreak, and then departs off into the wilderness. And yet at the whole time, all of the temple services and the sacrifices continued to go on at the temple and all of the outward religious activities, all of it was being adhered to, but at home, in private. If the truth were made known by their actions of God's people in the Old Testament, with their disobedience and with their rebellion against God and their hypocrisy, everybody really loved their sin much more than they loved God. And God said, there's nothing for me to bless here. I'm leaving. And he left. There's a tipping point that can occur in a local church. I don't say that it's happening here. I just say it for our own education. There's a tipping point that can occur in a local church when enough people fall into this category and it begins to affect God's ability to enjoy the service and His ability to participate in the service and to bless the service the way that He wants to. And He will even depart that kind of a church. And then what happens is interesting. The spiritually sensitive person recognizes that something has changed immediately. The needy person, the person who needs the church to be fully what God intends the church to be, they need all the blessing that God has they recognize that a change has occurred. The spiritually hungry person, they recognize that a change has occurred. They notice something is wrong, and then one by one, family by family, they leave to find another church because they can't survive in a church that's running somewhere between 30 and 70% of God's blessing and 30 to 70% of what God needs to be and do in a church, and he knows that we need him to be that and to do that when we assemble together. And then after a time in that same church, the only ones left in the church are Aikens, and everything's upside down. 
The Achans should have been driven out of the church. And the others left. But it all got flipped upside down, and it happens over and over and over again in church history. I do want to include an exhortation and a personal one to myself, to us as a body, again desiring a reference point concerning this realm of spiritual warfare and the release of it off of our body and off of our lives. If you're a pastor on this staff or on the staff in general or worship leader in this church or an elder or deacon or board member or an usher or greeter or a servant in the children's ministry, And if in the privacy of your heart you're living a life of hypocrisy or determined disobedience to God's call to holy, obedient living, then we need to either repent or we need to resign. And I exhort myself. Because otherwise, we are bringing defeat upon innocent people within the church. And they won't know why. They won't understand why. And it doesn't just go for leaders. Someone may say, I'm glad I'm not a pastor. I was going to join the usher team, but boy, I'm not going to be... It's not just leaders in a church and servants in a church. Is everybody. Achan was Joe Blow in that church. He was just the average guy. Achan wasn't Joshua. He wasn't a high priest. He wasn't even a priest. He wasn't even a Levite. He was just an average guy among the congregation of the children of Israel. And if we're living a life of secret sin or hypocrisy, verbally abusing people, one thing at church, then get you away from church, you slaughter people verbally every day. And you don't care. Or explosive temper. And you've ceased to desire to deal with it at all. It's just you. Everybody has to bear the brunt of that. But you never lose your temper at church. So that tells us you can control your temper when you want to. But you don't at home. And everyone's terrified of you at home. Or mistreating our spouse, treating that husband or wife like dirt, rather than looking and saying, that's a person who's given me the greatest gift in life. They have chosen to make a commitment before God to spend their whole life with me. And then to be abusive toward them. 
or addicted to pornography or watching TV and movies that are inappropriate for Christians, which is idolatry, gossip, slander, on and on it goes. I'm not talking about the person who's fighting against these kind of things. Make an appointment with the pastors. We're here to help, to walk people out of these kind of things and into victory, just as others do for us. But here's a person that's just settled into this and they don't care. It's important that if we're in that category to just resign whatever ministry that we're in and to get some help and get some counseling to get our relationship with God back to where it needs to be and then we can serve again. You say, Damien, you know, that's a kind of a risky thing to do on a Sunday morning to say something like that. What if everybody quits? They won't, not in this church. But what if they did? What if the whole worship team We're forced to quit by virtue of what God is speaking through this sermon. And all we had next week was just one person left in the whole church that's anointed to lead worship, and the only instrument he can play is the tuba. Well, then we'd have tuba worship, but we'd have the fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit and God's anointing upon the service. God is not afraid to replace me. He's not afraid to start from scratch all over again. That doesn't trouble him. That's never a danger to his work. Never a danger to his work. It's this other thing that's a danger to his work. And if the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin and you aren't willing to repent as a Christian. I'm not talking about someone who's struggling against sin. The struggle is an evidence of a work of the Spirit. But God is convicting you of sin and you aren't willing to repent as a Christian. Don't come back here till you do. Can I say that in love? I can say it in love. Someone says, well, shouldn't you just say, don't come here, but go to another church? No. Go to Cross Point. Go to Shelter Cove. I have people that I know and love at both of those churches. That's a person who's going to destroy and damage any church that they go to. And I think it's important to realize as well that if a person is unwilling to repent, that God will out us, just like he did with Achan, Because if every church gets destroyed by this kind of thing, then where are God's people going to go in order to meet with God and to experience the fullness of His Holy Spirit? And the longer a church exists, and we're pushing 30 years here now, the greater this tendency can be. If you think I'm kind of going a little bit too far this morning... I realize that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
the Apostle Paul declared that because of the sin that was going on in that church, people were dug down. Some people in that church are dug down in. They're going to do what they wanted to do. Didn't matter what God said. Didn't matter what the Holy Spirit was doing. Didn't matter what damage it did to anybody else. They just doubled down on their sin. Paul spoke to them. And he said concerning that church, he said, some of you as a result are weak and sick and some have even died. No, he didn't say that. He said, many of you are weak and sick and have died in that congregation. Because God just simply removed them and took them early to heaven in order to stop that kind of influence upon that church and to protect that church. Again, I'm not talking about the Christian who's less than perfect or struggling with sin or growing as a Christian and working through some things. Again, join the crowd on all that. We're talking about Achan's. And it's serious business because that kind of a Christian is a cancer in any church they're in, and God is not hesitant to cut that cancer out. In the New Testament, book of Acts, chapter 5, there's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And one of the things that's interesting to notice in the Bible is that over and over again in the Bible, when God was about to do something new or he was in the middle of pouring out extraordinary blessing upon people, favor upon Christians and their service to the Lord, that at those times he would sometimes remind his people, of how important holiness and purity is to him. And he did it with Achan. And he did it in Acts chapter 5 with a man and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. God is doing an incredible thing in the early church. People are getting saved right and left. There's all kinds of hardship. People are paying an enormous price to be a Christian. They're losing their jobs. They're being kicked out of their families, all this kind of stuff. But they're becoming Christians anyway. And some of them don't have food and clothing as a result of it and the hardship and all, and yet they're coming. And people had it in their heart, people who had possessions. They were selling those possessions. Some, like Barnabas, even sold a piece of land, took the proceeds in the course of the church services, and they would bring the proceeds, the money from the selling of these things, and they would lay it at the feet of the apostles and say, here's this money to take care of the needs of this new family, this wonderful thing that God is doing and the people that are in such great need. It was so sweet, so pure, so Holy Spirit. Then Ananias and Sapphira were watching this whole thing, and there was something that was attractive about that, walking up front and giving, and wow. So they sold a piece of land, and they kept back a part of it to themselves. And then they gave the rest to the apostles in the same way. But they gave the appearance that they were giving everything. 
They didn't have to give a penny to God. Nobody, that's, and Peter speaks to Ananias just before the Holy Spirit strikes him dead. It was your land. You didn't, have, you didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to give. You didn't have to give part. You didn't have to give all. You didn't have to give any. You just had to give without hypocrisy. That's all you had to do. And he'd introduced this leaven now into the beauty of this season and in church history. And it's just going to spoil things. And God, as Peter confronts, that's the apostle who was in charge of the service, confronts Ananias, and Ananias goes down dead. Sapphira comes in, his wife, a few hours later. Ananias was the first service. She came to second service. <laughs> Peter said, well, was this the deal and the whole thing? Yeah, it's the whole thing. And she confirmed her husband's story. And, she, and he said, the same men that came and carried your husband out dead earlier are now going to carry you out. And so they did. God smoked. Is it because Ananias and Sapphira are the worst Christians in the history of the church or different in any way from a significant number of Christians and anywhere in the world? No. Be an interesting thing if you had that sometimes that same standard and during the giving of the tithes and offerings, you know, where somebody wants to give. They wanted to look like a lot, so they put like the $100 bill on the outside and stuff it with a bunch of ones, and then when they give it, they give it like this as the bag's going by, you know, put it in there. Boom! Dead right there on the spot. No, we'll see them in heaven, and we won't remember any of this, and we'll love them and we'll have great fellowship with them. God was just driving home a point of how important purity is to his work and the danger that willful sin and hypocrisy is to the work of his Holy Spirit. So he made an example of them. And we're a part of a church that's praying for revival in our own midst, in our city, in our nation, in the world. It's the only hope for the world that we live in. We're not, not counting time down until the rapture of the church. That's not our attitude here. We're praying for God to do something big. He's done a big thing. And we may not even see it in our lifetimes. Lots of times generations prayed for revival, and it was a subsequent generation that saw the answer to those prayers. That's all God's business. But we're not just hanging out until the trump occurs So we're in the middle of a situation here where we're serious about what's going on. And we're pleading with God for this kind of a work in our church and in our worship services. And you know, you're experiencing it all the time as you come here to worship. You know the Spirit's present. Even a greater measure of that to happen in light of the need that's all around us. And so that's the cry that we have. And that's what we're asking God to do, something new, something big, something wonderful among his peoples, whatever he has on his heart and on his mind. And so often before he does that kind of thing, he'll do a little work of purifying. And it's always best to have a little sermon taught to us, maybe the one or two or three or however many of us, rather than it becoming something that's a little more public than that. 
Jesus, when he spoke to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation, that church had drifted away from its first love for him. And Jesus warned them that if they did not return to a place where their relationship with him meant more to them than their sin or their idolatry, he was going to remove their lampstand from its place. That is, he would, they would cease to enjoy the fullness of his presence. And he told them three things in that church. By the time a person is in Aiken, they're way beyond leaving their first love. But he spoke even to those that had left their first love. He said, remember from whence you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Just three R's, remember, repent, and then return. Go back and do the first works. And just basically, Jesus said, remember from where you're fallen. If you can remember a time in your Christian life, in the early days of of the Christian life, when everything was so pure and it was so innocent and so holy and so uncomplicated and when Jesus meant more than anything, much less sin or idolatry. He says, remember that. And then repent of anything that you have to to go back to that particular place. Any way in which sin has been reintroduced into your life and then he said, go back and do the same things you did with, in your relationship with God when it was new and when it was alive and vibrant and when it was growing and when it was marked by first love. What, the, what place did the Bible have in your life in those early days? Prayer, worship, coming to church, serving, all of those things. He said, you go back to that. Jesus is sober. He says he will leave a church that doesn't value his presence enough to be willing to obey his word and to walk closely with him. And I close with this. Last week I felt like, and I know that if you were here on Sunday night and then on through the week, we began something very important and a significant pushback against spiritual warfare related to our body. And that needs to be ongoing. That needs to continue. But today, we want to be awakened to the seriousness of secret sin and the importance of holiness. We're not sin sniffers around here. We just aren't. You just don't do it. Joshua wasn't. Nobody wasn't the children of Israel at that time. We point people to God and we get out of the way. That's what we do around here as leaders. But we're not opposed to taking a little bit of time to allow the Holy Spirit, who is a Holy Spirit, to search our individual lives concerning something that He wants us to repent of and then to turn fully back to a purity that He knows needs to mark our lives. And those two verses in Joshua chapter 7 in verse 12 and then in verse 13 are very significant speaking not to Achan but to the church body unknowingly affected by his sin. Very significant. God said, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies but turned their backs before their enemies. There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the cursed thing from among you. And again, we have an enemy, the devil, who makes the Canaanites look like they're selling perfume door-to-door or something. 
And we can't afford to just needlessly give them an opportunity to attack this church or the saints that call it their home and who desperately need this church to be a holy place and a peaceful place. So the worship team's going to come out right now. And I'm asking them to lead us in a little bit of worship here. The service isn't over. Most important part of the service occurs right now to lead us into worship, to allow us to respond individually to the voice of God in our lives, where maybe it's something we haven't even thought about and God will convict us and say, there's no business in your life and you know it. Got it. Or maybe he's been talking to us for 18 months on some issue and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But today, it's different. He wants to speak to us and we respond to it by saying, I get it. I hear your voice. I choose to turn from that right now. And would you forgive me of that sin and would you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit? to live the life that I cannot live apart from Him and the life that I now want to live. Let's worship the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning as we do so. Mike.